this is Corey with Restored Gospel. We're anxious to get into another session today, and we're going to talk about uh, God and Adam and the garden and Adam and Eve. So get your scriptures, and uh, we're going to have a good time opening the Word. Welcome to Restored Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity. We welcome you into that conversation. Coming at you from Independence, Missouri, the Cottage Studios. Welcome back, Corey. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, Mike? I'm doing good. I love uh, starting the day out with a discussion on the things of eternity and the fact that we have a great adventure awaiting each one of us. Can you imagine? I I remember when I was seven years old and I knew I was going to get to go to SeaWorld the next day and I was going to be able to take two of my friends with me. I remember waking up that morning and I got a present. It was a skateboard and I Uh had like a little three foot wide porch that was about, I don't know, 15 feet long. And I was trying to ride that skateboard back and forth, but I knew as much as I enjoyed that skateboard, that the great adventure was coming that day and that I was going to go to SeaWorld with a couple of my friends. And so we went there. And, and for a seven-year-old boy, that was quite an adventure uh, mm-hmm. to see the the animals and to, to just, you know, it seemed like it was an all-day thing. And back then, time was funny, man. It was like that day just lasted forever. Summer and today, was going to never yeah. end, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and now today, you blink and another day's gone by. But, Corey, we... We need to step out of this world now and then and hopefully quite frequently and realize that we have a great adventure just around the corner. And before we know it, we're going to shut our eyes and go to sleep and we're going to wake up and there is going to be this amazing transformation and life as we know it is really truly going to begin. But it's so necessary to go through everything that we need to go through before that great adventure begins. And that's to meet opposition, as we said in our last episode, to be enticed on the one hand or the other, Mm -hmm. to receive the ability to choose righteousness, to engage in a battle from the moment we wake up in the morning, not against flesh and blood, but against spirituality, against the powers of darkness, against the opposition that uh, God has allowed into this world and to, to finally receive joy and to partake of a fruit that is, how do we describe it? White above white, sweet above sweet, pure above pure, and that will fulfill every single hole in our little hearts that this sin in this world has created. Mm. The scars will be healed. We will be new creatures. Every tear will be wiped away. Every fear will be swallowed up in the perfect love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So wow. that's just that's just where we're at this morning. So brother, how uh, how have you been and what's on your mind today? Well, you know, I, I'm anxious for us to talk as always because uh, I know sometimes and people don't know this, but you know, we don't see each other for days and sometimes weeks and then when we get together to record is our just time to kind of catch up on life. So uh, I enjoy that, brother, and and enjoy the fact that we have a God who's gracious and has given us a, the word of life. Um, you know, when we were visiting last time, we were 
talking about Adam and Eve in the garden. And I, I hope people don't get bothered when we bring up questions that we have because we're friends having conversations and this is what we've always done. And, you know, we're, 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 uh, I think that's one of the great things about our friendship is the fact that uh, we've always trusted our hearts to each other and that we can be honest and open and even vulnerable, you know, about things and scriptures. And so uh, don't, uh, don't discount us if sometimes we say something that might not be how you see it either. Um, we're, we're seeking and we're, we're learning, but uh, in the, this opposition in all things, I was reading in the second book of Nephi, chapter one, we were in that last time, how this word opposition is used four times in like less than 20 verses. And it's it's so important that we see this, that no, God placed us in the middle on this balance beam and we could kind of fall to the left or fall to the right, fall into his arms or fall into Satan's arms. He's, the Book of Mormon has made it so clear all along that there's not any in between. And this opposition is described where he says, uh, the, this law that the Holy One has given inflicts the punishment or it offers the salvation, and it's all in opposition. It says, uh, I'm going to read from verse 80, the ends of the law which the Holy One hath, give, hath given unto the inflicting of the punishment, which is affixed, which punishment that is affixed is in opposition to that of the happiness which is affixed to answer the ends of the atonement. So we got punishment in opposition to happiness. Um, and he states in verse 81, he says, there needs to be an opposition in all things. And then in verse 97, he says, all this is to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, in, in, in our final destination, after he created our first parents and the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and all things which are created, there must needs be an opposition. And then he talks about the tree of life and the, and the, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What, what, is good about this is the fact that we find out that in the end, God paid the price so that the final destination we would have had, which was the the punishment, can be countered with a final opportunity of happiness. And and that's what this whole final prophecy is, is talking about. And, and I love how the Book of Mormon sets it up from the beginning that, hey, we, we can go one way or we can go the other way, but God has made it freely available for us to go the other way towards him. We talk about um, some people talk about um, the um, the omnipotence of God. Uh, nothing takes God by surprise. God's not bound by time. So from the very beginning, when He created uh, people, spirits, uh, set this whole plan in motion. He also, we believe, is at the end with all of us in our final state. Some people take that into an area of predestination. And I guess in some sense you could say, yes, that is that is true. But God was very clearly given, and in an inspired version it's very clearly stated that I gave unto man his agency to choose. And that is so directly tied, Corey, I believe, to our joy. It must be our joy because that's why he says he gives us an opposition so that Adam could fall, so that men could be, so that they could have joy. Mm -hmm. That freedom to choose is just directly connected to our eternal happiness and joy. 
Is it not? Oh, it has to be. And and this is one of the beauties that of truth restored, as we call it in the restoration, in that through the Book of Mormon, we learn that there is no, as some Christians call, especially in the Calvinist sect, uh, predestination in that God didn't just determine, oh, I'm saving you, I'm burning you, you know, others. He says, and working through the Book of Mormon backwards, like from Second Nephi all the way back to the chapter we've been in, which is Second Nephi verse one, he, God says, He denieth none that come to Him, black, white, bond, free, male, female. You know all these parallels He's got of of the extremes of people or whatever. None are denied. And it says, has he, um, you know, withheld? He says, no, but he's given his salvation free to all men, and he's commanded his people that they should be persuaded to repentance. All men has privilege. Right. Yes. And, and, and Nephi says in the seventh chapter, he says, cheer up your hearts. Remember that you are free to act for yourselves, to choose the way of everlasting death or the other way or the way of eternal life. Now, it's interesting because he says this, you're free to act for yourselves. This is exactly what Lehi says. He uses the word um, free, uh, and these are all Lehi's words, uh, four times in the same chapter he's talking about opposition. He says, you know, we, we, I just read four places where it talks about opposition. Well, Second Nephi chapter 1, verse 66 says, the way is prepared from the fall of man, and salvation is free. And then in verse 117, he says, uh, because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil. And then 119 says, wherefore men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient. And finally, verse 120 says, and you are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or choose captivity and death according to that captivity and power of the devil. And I want to that's why, you know, I've mentioned this man, Stephen Lawson. He's just one teacher who I think has a great talent for teaching the Word of God and expounding the New Testament. But I disagree with him in this point. And that's that's where I feel like it's free that we can gain knowledge and we can learn so much as the Holy Spirit. We believe we have the Holy Spirit to listen and to guide us from other people and to be aware when they when things travel into a way that we know the Book of Mormon speaks very clearly that, no, that's not so, that's why it's a blessing. And, and you, you don't have to be afraid or limit yourself to just, quote, you know, restoration doctrine or teaching. We can learn so much. God loves all people, and his Spirit guides all people to truth. And there's much truth out there. I think even Joseph said, study all good books, study all good things, you know, all of these things that bring us to Christ. And I have just tremendous blessing during the week hearing the Word of God expounded by people who are trained and understand how to do that in a way that makes it relevant to how I'm living today. And at the same time, if I recommend somebody to something, I know that there's there's points that we differ. And this is a huge point that's that the Book of Mormon very clearly says, no, all men have the privilege to come. All men are free. He didn't, from the beginning of time, say, I'm going to make a Judas that will be damned and burned forever in hell uh, You know, to, to betray Christ. If, if we believe the Scriptures, all men... Judas included had that ability, and I don't. I don't know the end of Judas. You know what happened to him. I, I just bring him up because he's an example used many times. And I know it said it was better if you never had been born to do what you did, but I don't know his 
anyway, I, I'm, I'm diverging, but you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, we, yeah. And, and, you know, here's, this has to be one of, you know, if, uh, if you listed maybe 10 of the major messages of the Book of Mormon, that has to be one of them that, no, God's offering salvation freely to anyone. It isn't a matter of, hey, he's only picking you. Now, of course, like you mentioned, the omnipotence of God, he knows how the story ends, right? But he's not in his plan limiting you or denying you. And and so part of this plan that we don't even understand is what happens in the prison house and how how is it that people's hearts change there too? You know, that's part of the story we really, really only speculate on. Because the, the Book of Mormon, or, or maybe it was... Uh... I think it's Doctrine and Covenant 76, when it talks about, uh, you know, this, only the sons of perdition are not saved, but that all men will be redeemed. But then it says, even after the suffering of the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I take that to mean, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a terrible, I mean, it, it, it means the that- harder your heart is, if there's still something there that can be saved, it, the harder the salvation is going to be and the yeah. more painful and the more stuff you're going to have to go through. Exactly. This is the life to change. And, which is and, why, yeah, he says, he says, repent now. Uh, the spirit that is in your, in your soul when you leave this, this earth will be in your soul when in, in the earth to come. Like you don't magically transform into this wonderful being that wants to, to love his creator above all, you, you, you know, if you're rebellious now, that rebellious spirit will be with you in the world to come. And so there's going to be that chastening and that rat wrath of God that's going to continue on until he achieves his purpose or until you completely deny him and he can no longer yep. do his work within you. So You know, I, it's probably going to sidetrack us for a minute, but I, since we brought it up. <laughs> that's God, never happened. It, it never happened. I, I just want to speak to this thing on predestination. And I, I've listened to Stephen Lawson. Man, he is probably one of the uh, most, uh, I, I, I want to say gifted, you know, expositors of Scripture. He, he can open up the Word and explain it clearly. Uh, I love that. And and I'm convinced that it's it for his love of the Word that he takes literally what kind of comes from Romans and Ephesians. There's two right. different passages that talk about this. But again, this is where the Book of Mormon explains something. And I, I want to explain what I think the answer on this uh, word predestined and in the elect means. Um, Paul was talking about his priesthood, I believe, when when he's talking about the predestination. And this, I'm just, I know I'm just jumping right in the state, making a statement, but I want to I want to share why Paul in Romans eight in the twenty eighth verse it says. We know all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to them who are called according to his purpose. And for him and him whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to his own image, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. Now that's not talking about predestination of salvation. That scripture right there is saying, you know, the predestination, he's talking about this was the choice to take on flesh, right? To be conformed to his own image that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's saying this is talking about the fact that this plan that God takes on flesh, that was the predestination, right? That was the plan from mm-hmm. the beginning. Um, and then he says in verse 30, moreover, him whom he did predestinate, he also called, and him who he called, he also sanctified, and him who he sanctified, in him he glorified. Again, this is all a reference to Jesus Christ. People see, oh, you know, sometimes people focus in on a word and they think, 
oh, well, predestination, God, God chose some people over others. It's, it's not that there, and it's not in Romans talking about, it's talking about this is a reference to Jesus, the fact that it was the plan from the beginning. But where, where we get into the issues, or the scriptures that people start to raise questions on come from the first book of Ephesians. But, and here's why I want to explain something. Paul starts Ephesians, you know, this letter to the people of Ephesus, and he introduces himself. He said, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, writing to the saints at Ephesus and the faithful in Christ. Grace be with you. And, you know, that's kind of how he opens it up. But notice what he says in verse 4. He says, uh, I'll, I'll, let me read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, this is interesting, the language that's used here. He says, as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. People take this to mean, okay, he's chosen us who are saved before the foundation of the world, and we're the only ones who are saved. But what I want to share is this. Um, he's, if you compare this to the Book of Mormon, it's in uh, Alma chapter 9. There's, and remember, Paul's introducing himself as an apostle to the people, and he says something about chosen us before the foundation of the world. Well, what's interesting is it's the same wording, it's the same language that's used in the end of chapter 9 of Alma, talking about something totally different. It's talking about how priesthood was from the foundation of the world. And let, me, let me share this from Alma 9. Um, starting at verse 61, uh, I mean, we could start anywhere, right? But we're jumping in the middle. He said, let us enter into the rest of God, which is prepared according to his word. And again, my brethren... I would cite your minds forward to the time which the Lord gave these commandments unto his under the children of men. And so he's uh, that cite your mind forward is kind of a Hebrew way of saying, hey, bring this bring this back to the forefront of your mind. God gave these commandments to the children of men, and I would that you should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after His holy order, which was after the order of his son to teach these things to the people. So somehow he's starting with the commandments and the fact that God called uh, priesthood to be the ones to bear this message to the world. Verse 64, And those priests were ordained after the order of his son in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to the son for redemption. So, okay, so the priests are supposed to teach us about Jesus, right? And here's the point, though. Verse 65, and this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the, there's the word, foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works, in the first place being left to choose good or evil, therefore having chosen good and exercising great faith, are called with a holy calling, and that holy calling which was prepared with and according to a preparation redemption for such. And, and he goes on to say this, and again, he said, these people were on the same standing of their, as their brethren, but they were called, and this holy calling was prepared from the foundation of the world. It's repeated again in verse 68, for as such as would not harden their hearts. So 
and, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it continues to say this was the high priesthood that was ordained from the foundation of the world. So, for, for as such that would not harden their hearts. Right, right. And, so even and, there is showing some some choice. And, and then later on, the scriptures say all are called, but few are chosen. Exactly, exactly. And so where I think what this is in Ephesus is Paul is simply saying this same thing. He said, hey, I'm an apostle. And he introduces himself all the time. He says, and, you know, God's called us from the foundation of the world to tell this message of Jesus Christ, having pre, I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 5 again, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And, and he, and then he states, um, again, in verse 11, uh, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh in all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who f- first trusted in Christ. Again, the language matches what the Book of Mormon was talking about people who, according to God's foreknowledge, he, he chose to be priesthood. But the language is not saying he only chose some to be saved. And that's the difference. Yeah, and think about Paul's perspective because he wasn't <laughs> he he was the Jew killing the Christians. Yeah, so imagine, I mean, imagine his perspective like here I am heading down the road to do something not great and boom, Christ comes in and and does this magnificent thing to me and appears to me and I'm blind and now his life is different. I mean, God had his finger on him and chose him and and Paul responded to that and God know knew that he would but um but it was like you talk about God stepping in and that's where it is like even our salvation uh, even our coming to choose God is so greatly enticed and influenced by him in the first place so he gives us our agency but he knows that we have a propensity to choose the flesh and to and to go through this battle and so he is can don't you believe that God even even though we have the ability to choose that he is greatly influencing those choices along the way by the prayers of our parents by the prayers of the saints I mean there's so many factors right it's not completely is it fair to say that our choices are not completely independent um Ultimately, they are, but they're so greatly influenced by God and his providence and what we've he got a, We've got a God who's our advocate. That's the word the scripture uses. He's our, he's our advocate. He's, he wants to steer things for right. our salvation, even if it means suffering in this life right now. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's, he's working it in our favor. We just don't see it, you know? All right. the time telling us that stove is really hot. Don't put your hand on it. You know, that's, you're going to get burned if you don't choose this. Right. Well, I, I, I just want, I don't want to go too far into that, but I just want to say like, you brought this up with Stephen Lawson. Like there are, there are men who are so devoted to God's word and, uh, you know, and I'm not against calling it inerrant, but I, God is the one who is inerrant. All of us men are fallible and, and the way we perceive and the way we understand is always limited by the human flesh. And, and so that comes through in scripture. Uh, there are limitations of translations. And this is again, one of the reasons the book of Mormon is so beautiful. It hasn't gone from literally the, the, the dialect of the, what we call the Hebrew 
in the day they spoke a they spoke Aramaic actually in the day of Jesus, and then the Aramaic was written in Hebrew, and then the Hebrew, if you're reading the New Testament, was translated into Greek, and then that was translated into English. So there's four different languages that's jumped through, and so. And then you've got the added component of plain and precious truths removed for nefarious reasons, which uh, right. Nephi sees. So he says, hey, so God's being merciful to us Gentiles. Here's the word, again, pure, straight to you. Read it and have eternal life. And that's the Book of Mormon. And that's why I just love it. It's like it answer, it sorts these things out. We don't have to get confused over predestination. But but I see good men, I mean, devote men like like uh, Stephen Lawson, for instance. Man, this guy... He is he's gifted and he, he loves to share the word. And it's yet, but he's taking certain words, which I can see why people come to that conclusion if that's the only explanation you have is what's coming from Paul, from Ephesians or Romans. And it's been said by people over the generations. So you start to kind of assume it must be true. But yet this is, this is why if we study the word we've been given, we find someday the Book of Mormon is going to become right. the, the light and the truth and, and the standard to the world. You know what was interesting in the end of, uh, I was listening to him teach on the attributes of God and what a foundational, mm-hmm. sitting through that for three or four days and just hearing about the sovereignty of God and who he is and his faithfulness and expounding in a way in the scriptures and, and as one scripture piles on another, it just sets this foundation like I have nothing to fear, like everything is in God's hands. He, he told a story of a lady that came up to him and uh, not him, but of a, another very popular minister back in the day and said, said, Pastor, that was a great sermon. You know, thank you so much. And and uh, I just have a question for you. Should I Should I pray to God about the big things or should I? is it okay to pray to him about the little things? And he said, the minister just very gracious said, oh, dear sister, he said, they're all little things. Mm. And he was not belittling her, but saying, the providence of God, you have nothing to fear. They're all little mm. things to God. So but what? So in, in, the, in the vein of talking about predestination, you know what was cool, though, Corey? He circled back, and he had a, conf- he had a moment when he was in seminary. He said that it was just like, Someone asked him, well, why evangelize then? You know, basically, if God already knows and if God's already set in order certain people to be saved, and he said, no, that's exactly why you do. And I realized that in the end, his understanding is still the same. It's like because God wants all men, because God is working to save all men in his providence, that's exactly why we go out and tell people about Jesus, to be a part of his, his plan. And though his though there's some slight differences in understanding, it's all back to the same page because we share the message of Jesus so that God's work will go forth in the hearts of men, even though he already maybe said it in order. And I don't care about, ah, we could discuss this all day, but the point is this, God does have a plan and we want, to present the word so that it can do its work within the hearts of men and we mm-hmm. and leave it at, at give it its power to mm-hmm. do what its intended purpose is to save all mankind and transform them. Yes, yes. You know, uh, coming back to Adam and Eve for a minute, there's something I, I really love that 
is light that we get from the inspired version. And I, and I didn't want to mean that I'm questioning, you know, things on the inspired version where I was saying things before. It just had me curious why Lehi wrote something one way and it, it seems to be written another way, but maybe we don't have answers to that, but I'm just holding on to what the book of Mormon says. But what I loved, I just read this last night. In fact, is if you read the account of Adam and Eve as given in the book of Genesis and the creation story, even before Adam and Eve are, what what we learn is that all things, it says, now it reads different in the inspired version. You get first person God, and that's not the point. But what it adds is that where he talks about making the firmament firmament and making the light and then separating the waters and um, putting the grass on the earth. You know, I'm just kind of skimming through Genesis chapter one. Uh, and he says, and I saw that all things were good and I made the evening and the morning and they were the third day. And then, you know, later on he says, and I set the firmament in the heavens and I created the whales, verse 23, and the winged fowls. And on the fifth day it was good. And then on the seventh day, you know, and then he says, I made man in my own image. And then male and female I created then. This is interesting. And he says, I made... I gave them the commandment, be fruitful and multiply. Now, he's he's done everything. He's created the earth, you know, the universe as we know it, supposedly. The animals, the trees, the plants, the, the life that's that's on the earth. Even Adam and Eve, in terms of humanity, and giving them the commandment to be fruitful. And then he says, I... and." the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And how the inspired version reads is interesting because it says in the second chapter, and thus the heaven and earth were finished and the host of them. And on the seventh day, I, God, ended my work and all things which I had made. And I rested on the seventh day for my work. Now it's interesting because that's where the story of Genesis and the King James kind of goes to, that God rested but what's interesting is here, he says in this inspired version, um, he said, all these things were the generations of heaven and they were created in the day that I made them. This is verse four. I made the heaven and the earth and every plant of the field before it was on the earth and every herb of the tree before it grew. And I, God, created all these things which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally on the face of the earth. And when you think about that for a second, I thought about, does this answer one of the questions about, well, creation itself? People, you know, again, Christians will defend God created everything in seven days, right? But he says, hey, to, to me, a, a year is like a, you know, a thousand years to you is like a day to me. But what he's stating about the creation is that everything was created in a spiritual sense. And the seven days that are marking creation in this account, he says, was all in the spiritual realm. And, and what's interesting is now in the second chapter in the inspired version, he said, I, the Lord God, created all these things spiritually before they were naturally on the face of the earth. For I, the Lord God, had not even caused it to rain on the face of the earth. So then he creates this mist of the earth in verse 7, and Adam becomes the first living thing on the earth, according to the story. And what, what caught my attention was this word naturally, because it occurs where God says, hey, I did all this stuff before it had naturally uh, been on the earth. But notice in verse 
11. So, so everything was created in seven days in the spiritual realm, but then he says this in verse 11, and out of the ground, uh, now let me back up. He says, I planted a garden west, eastward in Eden, and there I put the man whom I had formed, and out of the ground made I the Lord God to grow every tree naturally that is pleasant in the sight of man. Now, he had just created every herb and every blade of grass and every portion of creation, every man and woman. The whole story was created from the beginning in a spiritual sense, and that's what was created in seven days. But when he says, I, the Lord, created this tree and it grew naturally, now did 60 years evolve for this tree to become huge, you know? Did did now the time factor come into place where everything, and, and I... I don't want to use this word in the Darwinian sense of evolution, but did the the evolution and change of all the species and all the animals and all the plant life where, you know, scientists look at the human uh, record of DNA and animals and they see some similarities and they say, oh, they must have had a common beginning. We all started from, you know, amoeba. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is, is true, but the way that God used DNA and stuff in the physical to replicate something in the spiritual these formulas and rules God works by, you can see how they're applied to different aspects of life. But did he create everything that we see as change over time as part of the plan spiritually, and then he put it on earth and let it through time play out its story? In other words, the trees may have all been created in one day, but then when they're placed naturally on the earth— then they're going to take generations to grow and the seeds fall and the next generation grows and the mm. seeds fall. And then, so then you get centuries of time going on. Who knows how long Adam and Eve were even in the garden before they sinned? I mean, could it have been what we measure as millions of years? I don't know because we do know this, where God is, there is no time. So, I mean, not that things can't change, but he was walking with them in the, in the garden. Right. And so I'm kind of maybe speculating in the unknown here, but I'm just wondering if that doesn't answer part of the question. No, in the seven days of God's creation in the spiritual realm, everything was created. And then he rested to symbolize this fact that someday the earth will rest rest from all its iniquity, rest from sin, all creation, you know, God, God and all that creation will come together and rest in a day to come. That's what Zion symbolizes. But, but how maybe the seven days of creation wasn't in the physical. It did. He, where he, and what intrigued me was this word, Hey, I put every tree in it grew naturally. So that means seeds fell, things sprouted, Mm -hmm. things grow up. That took time. But when he created it, there wasn't time. He created every tree that was ever going to be through all the DNA of trees, making (laughs) other trees. Same with humanity, same with everything. It was all finished at the beginning. I like when um, you ponder on that and, and the scriptures say, you know, my ways are higher than your ways. And uh, I heard a, in a message this week, he said, you know, these churches you go to that, that have so many things going on, they feel like they have to put on a show and everything is because they don't understand the heights and the magnificence mm-hmm. and the holiness of God. That's not enough. And so they have to, they have to try to rise. But when you sit there and, and are elevated by the pure <laughs> thoughts of who God is, there's nothing else. That's worship. You're, yeah. you're to come up to his heights wow. in worship, right? No lights and video and sound yeah, system. Yes, so because, because this is enough when you ponder on these things. That's mm-hmm. enough to occupy your mind and really bring you 
into a level of holiness as you ponder those things that if God does all of that, certainly he can, he can take care of, like, they're all small things. It's all small things to me. <laughs> yes. Wow. I didn't know, Corey, if you wanted to get in, uh, because I had read through uh, some of your notes in the final prophecy, Adam and Eve, about the family and the way man. Was, I, was, I was hoping we could go there. I hope so, because, you know, some of these organizations today, and I'm not even going to name them, but but some very popular movements today that seemingly on the outside may be good for equality and justice. If you read their mantra and their 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 set of articles of beliefs and what they're all about, their their mission is to destroy the nuclear family. Yeah. Their mission is to say that, you know, there's no male and female, that that we're not created in gender where we choose to be what we want to be and and it's demonic. It's it, it, it's it, anti it God. Yeah. Yeah. So, what did God tell us about His plan for human flourishing, for man to flourish and come to know Him on this earth? He set up family and relationships in the very beginning. Amen. You know, one thing, and this can answer the question if anyone's wondering if somehow polygamy was supposed to fit in to this plan. Uh, or, or is there a place in in the celestial world or something? Because I know some people in the restoration have wondered that because of the acts of men, you know, a hundred or more years ago. The answer is no. God already told us how this is by the type and shadow of just the man and woman in the garden. There was one man with one woman because the one woman symbolizes the one church. All those who call upon Christ with a broken heart and contrite spirit. Those are the ones who are the church. Those are the ones born of him, changed by him. And this this answers the question. God didn't have one church and then another church and then, oh, well, I think I want five churches. And this it was all symbolized by the one woman. That's why in marriage, there was only one man and one wife at any time, not, not more. The allowance for when a companion would die to remarry, there's symbol. Uh, it, it's symbolized also in this, the old law of Moses, which was a temporal law to be done away in the death of Christ, is exactly what uh, Paul is talking about in uh, Galatians and other scriptures, where he says, when this law dies, you're free to remarry, just like a woman whose whose husband dies, or she's free to remarry. Um, the church's talk was told, now you were married to Christ, right? Before you were married to Moses, but you're only married to one at a time. And that was in a symbolic sense, of course. But the point is, so yes, these relationships that uh, that now are being mocked in our day, you know, it's nothing new that that's how Satan works. From the beginning, he's he's taken the very symbols that God has given us to teach us about him. And he's used us as the, uh, pardon the term, but his useful idiots, you know, were to become his minion, to take these gifts that God has given to teach us about him and turn them around and use those things for us to spite God in our ignorance. Um, you know, there's a clear example in the day when uh, uh, Jerusalem's ransacked by the Babylonians and you get Daniel and those taken captive and, and then they ransacked the temple. They looted the temple, and they took all these precious vessels that God had commanded 
them to use in the temple all had their symbolic purpose. The, the, the main thing was they had these vessels, which were like cups that they carried the blood of the sacrifice off of the sacrifice table from outside the temple into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and they sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Now, this is the probably the most beautiful and significant physical symbol there was of Christ in his own blood. The, the very vessel that was carrying the blood symbolized Christ. He carried his own blood to heaven, offered it, you know, the mercy seat, if you will, in a symbolic sense. But I don't, I don't want to go too far in that direction, but the point is when these objects which had beautiful symbolic purpose, which maybe even Israel didn't understand. But when they were there in the hands of the Gentiles who had robbed them from the temple, um, there comes a time when <clears throat> one of the kings is having a great party, and this is in the book of Daniel, and he's got his concubines and his servants, and he's he's wanting to get them all drunk, and you know can probably imagine where the story goes after that. But he says, hey, let's get those vessels that we stole out of the temple from Jerusalem and let's put our wine in those and, and here concubines drink out of these, right? He takes the very vessels that were intended to teach the, the blood of the sacrifice that was carried to this mercy seat for our salvation. And he uses it to get his concubines drunk. Right. Mm. And in that moment, it's in that moment that a finger appears on the, and it writes on the wall and it writes these words, meanie, meanie, tarkle, you or something like that. And, there, and and the king is so nervous, his knees are shaking. He says, well, get that Daniel guy. He needs to tell us what this says. And you know what it says? It said, God has judged you, and you've come up <laughs> at losing, buddy, because you have mocked God for the last time. And so that very night, the kingdom is ransacked. The Persians come in, and they, they ransack it. That was part of the prophecy. Well, why do I share this? We've done the same thing, taking these vessels of marriage and, and sex and sexuality and all these things which are holy, and and we've taken the you know the the world's turned sex into an industry, you know, where to sell things for material gain, and it's taken all the relationships that God gave us to teach, and it's made it seem like oh that's nothing, you know, marriage is meaningless, you know, two guys together is fine, two girls together is fine, you know, um, all these things that that the world tells us is them taking these vessels that God gave us that were holy and, and using it for purposes to spite God. And that's that's the shame of what's happened in our world. Luckily, when these things are set in order, these are the things we have to look forward to, to know that these will be forever behind us. The perversions in our world right now that pull us in and entice us um, and, and cause us to wonder. You know, like you said, you know, there there's organizations that are, literally trying to work against the family. Well, there's organizations within the church that think they're doing God's work and they're not, you know, they get labeled things like social justice sometimes. And, and I'm sorry, but that that's just a thinly disguised word for, you know, political organizations that are, that have their own separate agendas, you know, uh, God, God's justice and mercy are two different things than the, what the world calls social justice. And, and there, there's totally different definitions there. Let but, me go ahead. Let me just read in, and. And this is not meant to be offensive, but one of my biggest sadnesses right now is Christians who, like you said, want to participate in social justice and, and you know, and probably a lot of them innocently wanting to make sure that all men are created equal. And that's good. But let me 
let me read a popular group. And this is, this is the Black Lives Matter, and you can go to their website and say, what we believe. And I think our, our, our listeners need to know the, the evil designs behind Satan wants to make things look good. But, right. but let, me read, let me just read what we believe. We foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, okay, man and woman, woman and man, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she or he or they disclose otherwise. Wow. I had no idea that was there. We disrupt we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure Jeez. requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children. Let's, let's take away any authority from man and woman and raising their children and the stewardship God's given us, especially our children to the degree that mothers and parents and children are comfortable. Uh, it goes on to say we, uh, uh, we we dismantle, we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. Mm. So there's ways to say, well, this is, and I don't care if you're trans or, or, or whatever you've done, you have no right, there's no right to to be hateful or to hurt or to maim or to kill or to be violent towards people like that. They are just simply under sin, and they need to be brought to the true love of Jesus and his plan for their life as much as anyone. But when you are purposely trying to elevate queer and and when you say that there is no heterosexual, people aren't heterosexual, we we're dismantling that notion that you're born in that way unless you say otherwise. In other words, you're born whatever you want to be, and if you choose to be heterosexual, then then you are. Mm-hmm. That's the basis, and that's the, the driving force behind what many people are buying into in the name of, well, Jesus loves all people. Let's create – that is the truth. And, and as was preached last week at our church – there's nothing worse than taking the truth of God that Jesus loves all people. And, and we're told in the scriptures there is no Greek or Jew or Gentile. And we would say today there's no black or, or white or Asian. We are all one in the family of Christ. Mm-hmm. But to take that and then turn it around and say, you know, these, these kind of things, you you you, you – this is not really your agenda is to make everybody equal. It's, right. it's to, uh, t- to dismantle any form of absolute truth. Exactly. That's, that's the hidden agenda, and it's not even hidden anymore. It's not even disguised. And, and it's unfortunate that organizations like that, you know, it's like Satan raging in the hearts of men against that which is good. We just read that in Second Nephi 11, yeah. against that which is good. And, and where my heart goes out is to people who, um, you know, the, the issue with homosexuality, for instance, in our world, there's, there's a, I would, I think most people don't really understand the origins of it. And, and for people to just say, oh, well, it's sin and they, they, they need to change. I think that that doesn't always reflect the, the underlying issue is that for some people there's, there may be engaging it because that's something that they just 
think there's no boundaries and no rules and they do it. But for a lot of people, they don't understand why it is. They don't understand because there was some emotional or spiritual component in their life that was just out of, uh, out of adjustment, if you will. And it led to certain, um, feelings that they, they couldn't change or withhold because of some other deficiency, I guess, then some of these homosexual behaviors become the symptom. It's not that some people are outwardly just thinking, Hey, I just want to sin against God. It's like for most people, they don't understand why they have those feelings. And so their life and the lifestyle they might lead is in response to feelings that they never understood. But yet they were given to deal with. And it's a stronghold and it's a stronghold that we as the church have to have sympathy for. Like you say, we are, we're not to teach that these things are, 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 are okay to live by, but we're not to reject the people who have been fallen victim to that. And what I really makes me angry about like what you just read from this organization is that they are taking advantage of people who've been emotionally traumatized or spiritually neglected or have, have obvious pain and they're just using them to their advantage for a political purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same as the underprivileged and underclass in our society who have always heard this message. Hey, vote for me and I'll make sure you get a bigger welfare check. It's like, you know, they don't really care how the person's life is. They just want their vote. Yes. And that's, that's probably something about everything going on. It's hard for me to put into words because I just know the spirit's wrong, but I'm not elegant enough to state it. But, but that's what exactly what you just said Nobody cares about the sin deep down in the heart, and that's and, that's and it's why tearing you, these people up. It's 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 ruining their lives. As Christians, we shouldn't be joining these organizations and getting behind them. We should be out in the street, you know, preaching this. Yes. If you want to preach truth that all are inclusive, one Lord, one faith, yeah. one baptism. There yeah. is no Greek, there is no Jew. When Jesus came and the apostles went out, they had to work so hard to get it over through people's heads. Like you are no longer Jew and Gentile. You are all one in the family of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they all came from so many backgrounds. Yes. But the, the falsehood is then when they say, and there's no heterosexual and there's no this. And there's, it's like, that's where you have to be careful when you realize, no, God gave us boundaries. Right. God gave us laws. God gave us rules, if you will, to teach about him and not, not to exclude, but but there there still is sin. You know, there still is right and there still is wrong. And all these other organizations want us to believe that everything that was a boundary wasn't a boundary anymore. It shouldn't be. And yet God gave us these for, for reasons to bring us to a stronger, greater knowledge of him. And what they do instead is they, they take us away from him and they turn us into our, in, inward to ourselves and our own thinking. Right. And so one of the words is inclusivity, you know, be inclusive. And that's, that's uh, taking a very um, concept of God that is righteous and it's perverted it. And so inclusivity now means um, get rid of right and wrong so that we can all be together under one thing without anybody judging anybody else, without anybody calling out anybody else's lifestyle or sin or saying in any way, shape, or form, you should be ashamed of what you're doing. There is no more shame. There's no more right and wrong. There's no more boundaries of any sort. And that's the exact opposite of the inclusivity that God says in the scriptures. He says all are privileged, all are inclusive, all are invited Come eat, it's free. Take of the the water and the bread of life, and 
be inclusive in the body of Christ, but at doing so, you're inclusive because you've all given up all of the sins, and the only thing that remains is my spirit that binds you together. Exactly. It's the exact opposite of the perversion that we're hearing today. Here we say, give up all rules, give up all semblance of righteousness, give up all framework that would divide anybody because they're on this side or this side or this side. And in dues, so we're all one together, but we have no code of conduct. We have no right or wrong. We have no sense of lifestyle. And God says, no, give up all of your sins so that righteousness makes you inclusive. My righteousness makes you inclusive. Amen. Amen. You know, and that's the perversion that's, that's running around right now. You know, this, uh, this point you're making about the inclusivity, What's what they're making it is the natural man, which you know doesn't want boundaries, doesn't want rules. They're they're elevating the natural man and say, let's all just do what we our natural carnal feelings are. And then if you're judging us, well, that's not that's not right. But the whole point of God, His inclusivity is let your heart change because your heart is being drawn by the natural man and it's going to draw you away from me. And where His inclusivity is is. All of us have to have a heart change, and when our hearts change, can also bring healing. And that's the message that none of them want to hear. That hey, I need to change. The the whole message is, oh no, you don't have to change. And then they add in the little lie, and God loves you just the way you are. It's like, no, God is telling us that none of us can be in His presence unless our heart has changed. And it isn't until we realize we're helpless without Him and that we need a Savior that that seed of change gets planted in us. And then that's what grows. And that's what makes us the church and inclusive to him. But hopefully it it never allows us to forget where we came from in that we're all sinners who fell, right? And and not to be judging other people for saying, well, I'm in and you're out and you're stupid and, and this and that and the other, and you just got to get rid of your sins. You know, the whole point is they need to hear this message. No, we were all hopeless. And now we've got, hope. You know, there, there was no light and truth and now we've got light and truth. And this natural man that you're wanting to just, uh, elevate and almost worship because all these things you're doing are the outcropping of the natural man, you know, the perversions and the homosexuality and the, 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 the lifestyle issues and all these, it's just a segment of the issues in our society, but the, the greed and the lust and just the, Everything and and what I hate about this is that in these circles so much and I'm getting a little it's, it's just personally <laughs> bothering me because then what gets mixed in with this is this righteous eating lifestyle that it's like oh well we're committing all these perversions and stuff with each other but you know what we eat kale every day and we're you know and we we won't eat that pop tart you know so it's like acting like oh but we've we've got life figured out you know yeah. it's like you know i just hate this because it's like emphasizing the the physical and acting like the physical is the end all and missing the whole point of the spiritual we got a little uh gremlin in our system again he just popped in Corey. i wanted to um read a lot of people there's a christian author a lot of people have heard of the book uh bonhoeffer um um eric Metakis, if i can say his last name have you heard of that author uh, very popular he's written several books um bonhoeffer Dieter, yeah i've heard diedrich bonhoeffer he wrote a he's a best-selling author um I wanted to read, he wrote something this week, and this is one of the few Christians that I've actually heard hit the nail right on the head. I just thought this was so 
this was so insightful. And I'm not going to read the news that it came from, or, um, but he said that the destructive chaos that we're watching engulfing this country right now is likely rooted in a hatred of divine authority. Mm, it's not. It's go. not. That, so listen, listen to this. Um, it says that recent recent instances of church arson. Which there last week, and you probably didn't even hear it on the news. There were four churches that were burned to the ground, Catholic churches, mm-hmm. by these groups. Uh, he says, "I think a lot of the nastiness that is being directed at the statues and churches, and really has nothing has to do with something deeper than protesting against you know social injustice." He says, "I hate to say it, but there's something very dark. You saw this in the French Revolution." There was a hatred at the bottom of it of God, of any kind of authority. Mm-hmm. These people are drunk with the idea that they can somehow be an authority themselves, that they can seize power. And if you really want to cut to the chase, you forget about statues of generals and things. You go right for God. You go right for the Virgin Mary. My goodness, you go right for churches. You cut to the chase. Mm-hmm. Um, he says... Going on to reference Captain Ahab, rage against God and Moby Dick. That's really where the source of hatred is coming from. It's a hatred of God and a sense of deep injustice. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that goes way beyond Confederate generals. And our leaders can't stand the idea of an authority higher than themselves. I do think, though, and this is, this is telling that Christian leaders play a role in this. I don't see Christian leaders doing the same, and I don't know why. He says, Muslim leaders would never countenance a mosque or Islamic monument being defaced. Mm -hmm. I don't see Christian leaders doing the same, and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. They don't want authority, any authority, anybody to say you're wrong and you need to change, and that's that's your point. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us not to get caught up in, in the narrative of the day but to realize that each one of us has sin and all of these things are just a form of sin. It's a form of sin. And it's really dangerous when we start labeling sin and and saying that what you're thinking is a sin and what you're, um, because you just can't get into the minds of people and you can't start saying that um, certain thoughts are hateful. We are watching our rights to um, speak up for truth in the Bible right now being come. Just um, wrote it away. And, and again, soon to be against the law, you know, to speak any truth because the inclusivity of God comes with a double-edged sword. It's you do these things, you cannot be inclusive in the family of God. Yeah. And, and the other side is do away with the laws so that everybody's inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes it to the extreme where Jesus said words which – People didn't understand, but I think it's to your point where he said, hey, I didn't come to bring peace. I, I came to bring a sword to turn, you know, a uh, sister against the brother, you know, the mm-hmm. father against the mother. Whatever. I mean, all these things weren't obviously what Jesus wanted, but the point was so that we could know the difference between right and wrong. And like you just said so well, well they, the- they don't want it. They don't want any right and wrong. They want whatever they feel to be right. I don't know if you want to get in. There's so much. 
there's just, there, you know, there's a handful of good points that you've made here in the final prophecy about men and women and, and the, the example of Christ in the church and the kingdom coming forth. Um, I don't know if we have time to do that now or if you want to. Well, one of them I, I just want to touch on, and this, this kind of, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a symbol on every level if we take God's word. Um, even like intimacy, um, I'm going to share something that I learned later in life, but uh, my maternal grandfather, he was such a kind, loving man, and everyone loves their grandparents, I know that. But um, I learned that when my grandfather married my grandmother. He was um, 23, and she was only 16, and this was back in the 1930s when they got married. But um, they didn't consummate their marriage for two years because he loved God's word so much. He believed that she needed to be of age before they did, even though they were married and didn't have complete sexual intimacy. Um, I was told that later in life and I was just, it, it made, it made me feel, you know, uh, like I'm, I'm never going to be anything like, like he was, you know, just <laughs> because, he, was, just because you know, he loved God's word so much. But there was a scripture that said, Hey, you know, if, if she's past the flower of age and all this stuff, well, the reason I bring this up isn't just to promote that, but my, my grandfather's story, although I, I just am amazed, but this fact that there's a parallel in that, you know, everyone wants to have Zion now. Everyone wants to have Zion now, but we don't understand that Zion is this ultimate intimacy with God and the church. And there's a reason why in the scriptures it, it laid this age rule out, if you will, in that the church has to be spiritually ready for that type of intimacy with God. And we aren't because our hearts aren't changed. And the, the, the test of the intimacy readiness is when our hearts change as a church. And when we all know God and love him and keep his commandments and are willing to be broken and contrite, and we're nowhere near there. And that's why, that's one of the reasons you know, and I'm not, the, the covenants have to be fulfilled before Zion comes, but it's in the process of the covenants being fulfilled where the world becomes so polarized that the people who love the Lord love them with all their heart, might, mind, and strength. And the people who don't hate them with all their heart, might, mind, and strength. And the two are so obvious that Nephi writes, there's going to be two churches. But at the end, the the love for of God's people becomes so strong that we fulfill what Genesis 9 says, when everyone keeps God's commandments, Zion again comes to the earth. In other words, we're ready to be intimate, if you will, to use the parallel with God in a way that we can't right now. And that's that's that beautiful um, scripture, Revelations 19, 7 and 8. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage, the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. <laughs> exactly. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Yep, yep. You cannot take the story of man and woman in marriage and the way the man is to treat the woman and the way the woman... Uh, respects the man and take that away from its intended purpose, which is the relationship of God to his bride, the church. Exactly. I mean, that that's so beautiful. The marriage of the lamb, the lamb, the slain son of God, the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife, which is all of us, is ready, has, has made, made herself, herself ready. ready. Made herself ready. And then uh, can you imagine, Corey, a group of people worshiping together and waiting for the for the lamb to come and it says 
that we were arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. There is nothing better than feeling clean on your most innermost soul. And the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, the righteousness of the saints. Exactly. And that's, that's what we have to look forward to. And my, you know, this, This is the challenge. I mean, this is this is where we're at individually. This is where we're at as a church. Is is because God's always been calling us to this, represented by the the linen, the this this change, this this purity, and and I'm hopeful that this time comes. And this is why don't get down over over events in the day because there is a day coming when when the church does change and the world does change, and it'll be because you know his his change he's placed in our hearts, kind of. Bears fruit finally, but you know one other thing on this um, in in the final prophecy is uh, you know this idea of uh, children being born and, and the fruit that's being born out of the marriage. Um, this this again has this parallel in the the future that that we don't understand um, in our day and age too, where it's kind of like you know when I was growing up, um, you know. You know, they they misuse words. You know, they they would call children if they weren't born in a in a in, within wedlock illegitimate, and it's like it's it's unfortunate because there's no such thing as illegitimate children. There were only illegitimate parents. You know, mm-hmm. and and that's the that's the problem is that this is one of the reasons why again, you know, we don't have the kingdom on earth now because the the church hasn't made itself ready and it's part of the covenant. But the fruit of this marriage is. Uh, in in a sense, you know, the being fruitful and multiply. Now we're going to enjoy the product of what God's people and God can do, and and there will be a, a brand new world made new of, that our eyes have never seen, our ears heard, or entered into our hearts, according to the Scripture. That we can't imagine the things He has waiting for us. That's the fruit of the marriage to be born. That's like the children being born, but it can't happen until. You know, we, we claim God right now, but we haven't made ourselves ready. And when we make ourselves ready and that day comes and the and the world comes to him, that's what the ultimate final prophecy fulfills is the, the fruit that are born. But it only happens after there's a marriage and only happens after there's intimacy because of the marriage, none of which we're ready for right now. And if you think about a husband and wife being intimate, um, you know, there's, you know, without getting too graphic, I mean, kids can be born, but... If, if, if the husband and the wife or even the husband and the, not even the husband, if the man and the woman are intimate on some sort and they, they were physically intimate and they can produce a child, but if there is no intimacy in spirit and in right relationship and in respect and I'll lay down my life for you exactly. and I and the woman, I will respect you and honor you and and the man, I, I will do everything for you. I won't coerce you. I will I will uh, lay my life down in love for you. Exactly. And entice you to to do right because of my love for you, not my my uh, overwhelm yes, right. not my demanding. That's that's true intimacy. Exactly. And so when when the church tries to come together with Christ and produce a child, but not know him, you know, just go through the motions of sex to produce a child, but never be intimate and never follow all of the commands and the right relationship, then the kingdom's not born. And then you have Amen. a you have a what we would call a, a illegitimate child or an illegitimate kingdom. It may have kind of a form of it, but it's nothing to do with righteousness. And yeah. that's what 
these powers that be now want to be, they want to have incorrect relationships. And yet we're called to be intimate with God and to know him. It says to know me, to know him on an intimate level. And when we come to know him, you say, once you become intimate, not too much time after that, the child is born. And we would call that the kingdom of God is born then. Yes, exactly. And that's the fruit of it all in the end. Uh, from the spiritual relationship. Yeah. You so know, as why not, why would Satan not try to attack family and structure that is supposed to point us to have this great picture of the kingdom of God and his plan for the marriage? Why, why, why not get rid of that at this time and just totally pollute it and get it out of our thoughts? And it's not even a, it's, it's a tragedy. And so the church needs to stand up for not just the purpose of man and woman to be right, because the Bible says, you know, a man shouldn't lie with a man, but but to show the the plan of the kingdom of God, the exactly. story of all from the very beginning we're showing, you're showing in the final prophecy, the very beginning God is showing a plan for humankind through Adam and Eve. Right. And when we when we model those, when we believe those and act in those and live in those parameters, we're demonstrating to God that we understand your plan and your purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for one of the things that I, I I never understood it and then I grew to kind of detest it was some men and they use Christian um, Christianity, if you will, or certain scriptures to sort of, you know, rule with an iron fist in, in, in their life. And I guess we all can interpret scripture the way we want to. Who knows? Maybe they're right. But I, I never felt like that's what... We were we weren't given any permission to do that as men in that, but what what we were asked to do was do because when did Jesus rule you with an iron fist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when did he treat you that way? He he didn't, but his model was to lay down his life for us and to sacrifice. So men are called to lay down their life if it means you got to work two jobs to support your family. Well, you do that. You do because you put them first and you make sure their needs are met and that your life doesn't become your own self-servient way of making sure your own needs are met. But the same with a woman, her her job is to honor and respect and, you know, to be honest and, and have um, – the, the the same attitude the church should have towards God in that to to be the help and to be the comfort and to and to and to bring peace and to and to bring that companion that God always wanted out of the church to to model that behavior towards a husband. Now the problem is we're talking in this altruistic sense as if men aren't sinful and women aren't sinful. Yeah. We're, we're all weak and fallen, and we're all going to do that imperfectly. So. Even on our best days, we don't do that well. But it's the desire in our heart that I think God is measuring to say, hey, no, you get it. You get the point that, you know, you're supposed to both be submissive to each other and lay down because that's what Jesus did and that's what the church should do. You know, there's there and you and you also uphold that relationship above all other relationships. You know, you never you never make some uh, covenant or pact with someone and exclude your husband or for instance, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you just don't do that. And so this is these are the things that, you know, obviously in our fallen world they happen and they happen a lot in relationships because we all have kind of broken relationships and we try to make the best of it, you know, in this life. But God gave us this pattern that he says, Hey, the best you can live by this, this is demonstrating to me your understanding and you'll be blessed by it. Even if you don't always understand why you're doing it. Yeah. There's, there's so many things we could go into, you know, men are tempted all the time to look oh, at, yeah. at other women I, and, I, to, and to every, every man's battle, you know, every yeah, day, right? but, but, but when you do that, at least for me, I'm reminded that 
this will cause damage to your relationship with your wife. Right. And if you, and, and in the same way that's caused damage to the church as they look away from the bridegroom mm-hmm. Christ. Um, so there's so many things we can learn. We, we do, we have a lot of room to improve in teaching these concepts to our, to the people, but um, and living them. Yeah, ourselves. no kidding. It's kind of <laughs> like it's kind of like I was listening to a talk the other day on someone talking about fasting, and he was a physician, and he said, you know, if you know, if all doctors understood all the aspects of health, uh, why is it that we have, you know, he, and he was just using weight as, as an example. Why do we have overweight doctors? In other words, you know, the same in the priesthood or the same <laughs> in the church, you know, yeah, we're called as priesthood, but we don't always get it right. You know, we right. have our own sins and our downfalls and we try to work through that and everything. But yet um, when we can get it all together, man, we see the, the blessings of God open up to us. And, and um, I, I just feel like, this is one of the areas where it's in relationships where, again, as you pointed out, there are subversive uh, doctrines of men trying to pull us away, and God has given us a clear path forward in his word. Agree. You, Those of you following along, uh, there's much more here uh, on the final prophecy. You can read the scriptures and read about marriage and God's plan and um Corey, I think we touched on a lot today that's that's pertinent to today and also throughout time. I'm just enjoying listening to your beautiful voice. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, just keep walking each other home. Until next time, God bless.